Good morning. Welcome to New Hope. If you're live streaming, really glad to have you online with us. Uh, we open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. If you have one with you, if not, you're going to find them in the racks around you, or you can, uh, you can watch the verses come up on the screen. Kind of a big day here at New Hope. This is a, a day when we begin turning in our pledge cards. You might have received one in your bulletin if you happen to forget your pledge card at home. Here's the deal. If, if you're new to New Hope, um, we're working towards building a new building and presented it two weeks ago. And people have been praying about this for 90 days now. And so what we've invited you to do is uh, begin bringing pledge cards this weekend if you're going to be committing to the building project. We have baskets up here in the front and in the back for the promise cards to go into. And if you decide to participate in this, uh, today we're going to be receiving communion in just a little bit. And you can bring those envelopes up when you come up to take communion this morning or to the back table back there and just slide it into the baskets. But if you decide throughout the month you want to mail it in or if you want to bring it next week, that's entirely up to you. Or if you want to put it in after the service, you can do that as well. So just a heads up on why those bulletin or those inserts are inside your bulletin. Um, I'm going to pray with you in just a minute, but what I'd like to do before we go into Romans 3 is take you to kind of what might be considered an anchor verse. And it's kind of a root us and, and show us where Paul is going in this passage in Romans 3. Look with me on the screen at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1.27, he says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. Uh, in context, the way this word nullify is used, it means to make something void or to make it of no effect. When you go to 1 Corinthians and you look at that passage, you'll find that Paul's been talking about the powers of this world, the, the leaders, the, the rulers and when he comes to this, he says, God is making that power base of no effect, making it completely void. Why is he doing that? Look closely at the end of the verse. That no man should boast before God. And this is where Romans chapter 3 is going this morning. God's going to deal with a core issue in humanity, which is the issue of pride. And, and it strikes at the heart of every non-believer and believer. Every person has to deal with this issue in their life, the pride issue before God. So I'm going to challenge you to do something. If you've got a friend that is curious about their own standing before God, if you've got a phone with you, text them right now. Tell them they can live stream this right now if they want to know how to be good with God, how to get right with God, because that's what we're really talking about this morning. So go ahead and text them. I'm going to pray with you. Let people know that they can stream this themselves, and maybe you won't even want to get a copy of this message and share it with a friend afterwards. Let's go to prayer. Father, we come before you recognizing that you're going to do some heart surgery this morning. You're going to work on us in a way that we didn't even anticipate coming in here. And that's the way your Holy Spirit often operates in ways that we don't anticipate. God, we recognize that what we're about to do goes far beyond man's capacity. It has to stem from the work of your Holy Spirit. And so that's what we ask for, that your Holy Spirit who is present here, we know that you're here, God, that you would teach us. We ask you specifically to be our guide. Show us things we can't see on our own. We ask for an ability to be focused, that distractions would be removed, and that we would allow you to speak directly to us what you want us to hear. Father, I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So if you haven't been with us during this study in Romans, uh, we've been working on this since June, so we're like 18 weeks into it, but I'm going to compress it into a nutshell for you into about two minutes, all right? We'll do a good news, bad news kind of thing. Here's what we've seen in chapters one through three so far. Here's the hard news. Paul has essentially laid out the case that every one of us are guilty of sin. We all have sin on us, so by the time you get to verse 23 of Romans chapter three, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. And because I'm guilty and because I'm a sinner, that means I can't stand before God in my own capacity. And here's where the good news breaks in. Here's the happy part of it. If you're going to do good news, bad news, there is a way to stand before God. And the way has a name, and the name is Jesus. So we can stand before God because of Jesus, even though we have sin in our life. God has made a way. And here's the cool part about it. It's completely dependent on God's provision, not on my performance. That's good news. Because my performance falls short all the time. And don't look at me that way because I know yours does too. Okay? It does. We fall short. Gratefully, we have the Holy Spirit working in us. So these two truths set Christianity apart from everything else on planet Earth. Everyone's covered in sin. No one can stand before God in their own capacity, but God has made a way for us to stand before Him in His capacity. Those two truths set Christianity apart from everything else. It's dependent upon God's provision, not upon my performance. So with that in mind, I want to take you into Romans chapter 3. And here's where we left off. We left off with verses 21, 22, 23, and 24, but that was three weeks ago. Because two weeks ago, we talked about the building project, and we looked at how David built the temple. And then last week, I was gone, and Gary was able to teach, so we haven't been in Romans for three weeks. Let me show you where we left off at as we lead into these last couple verses. Romans 3.21 says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, here's the hard news, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the happy news, verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. You might remember, we spent a lot of time on that word propitiation, what God did on our behalf through propitiating Himself. Those verses set up the final paragraph of chapter 3. And Paul takes us into four really probing questions in which he also gives the answers. So the way you're going to see verse 27 on the screen is the same way that Paul presented it. Here's the question he lays out there. Verse 27, where then is boasting? His response, it is excluded. Here's the next question. Remember, there's four of them. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Here's the third question, verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Here's the last question. Verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. 
So let's take these four questions on. We just one at a time, we'll go through them, and, and they don't take very long to do. But here's the very first question he asked. Where then is boasting? And his response, it's excluded. So clearly, this issue of pride is on Paul's mind. Why? Because it's on God's mind. God knows that this is a problem for mankind. We've got to deal with this pride issue in our life. And so Paul has taken three chapters to build all the way up to this point to put the capstone on the argument of three chapters by saying this boasting, this issue in your life, it is excluded. Now, in context, the boasting he's talking about here is not like self-congratulation, not like going into the end zone and spiking the football, right? It's not that kind of thing. Not talking about personal achievement. So the chances are you're kind of looking at this and thinking, what's the big deal? This is not an issue in my life. I don't deal with that kind of a pride problem. Boasting is the expression of pride. Boasting is the expression of pride, and because pride is what brought us down, when Adam and Eve fell, they fell because of pride. So because pride is what brought us down, pride at its very core has to be destroyed. It has to be dealt with. And boasting is not always loud, and it's not always obnoxious, and it's not always braggadocious. Many times... It surfaces in other ways. Pride surfaces like this in our life. I don't need blank. Now, it might sound like this in the life of some of your friends. I don't need church. I don't need God. I don't need the Bible. I don't need you to tell me about sin. That's what pride actually sounds like, the, the kind of boasting Paul's talking about here. It goes right to the core of who a person is. So what he's really driving at here is this issue of justification. Justification before God. How you get it and why you need it. That's what we're really examining here. So this subject deserves a lot of amplification so that we really understand why is this a capstone. So for one, the very nature of faith rules out boasting completely. We can't boast of that which we have to receive through no ability of our own, right? If I'm a person who received an inheritance, let's say I had a relative that died and they left me some money. I can't boast because of my great financial prowess, right? Because I didn't do anything. I just received it. We can't boast of the very thing that we received if we did nothing to achieve it through any ability on our own. So in the case of justification, God removes the basis for boasting because he did it. He did it decisively once and for all. There's a decisiveness in the way that it's written. It, when he says it's excluded, it means literally in the Greek language, God slammed the door on it. God shut the door because it's not possible for you to have something to boast about. He shut it out. Why is this so important? Why do I need to be reminded of this? Well, for me, I landed on two things when I'm working through this passage. One is it reminds me that God knows me intimately well. He knows you. He knows our human nature. And he knows what we try to do is we try to claim some standing before him. It is our proclivity to try and take territory. Our ancestors did it. Adam and Eve did that very thing. They tried to claim their own throne, their own territory. Satan, when he came to Adam, how did he play on him? You can be as God, meaning take your own territory, Adam. You can rule over your own life. So God knows that about us. 
And he knows this is a pride issue that right at the very core, and in this issue of justification, we cannot claim pride because Jesus did it all. Amen, church? He did everything. Salvation is all of God. Just think of a swimmer in Lake Michigan. I grew up on the west coast of Michigan. I grew up on Lake Michigan shoreline. So this one's really pertinent to me. Think of a person going swimming out in the lake. Wind comes up, undertow kicks in. I've been in those undertow situations. I know what it feels like to have your legs dragged out from underneath you. And when a person is swimming and begins drowning, a person who is drowning in that situation can't brag because they're so intelligent that they put their confidence in the capacity of the lifeguard to save them, right? No, you don't have any choice. You have to trust the lifeguard. You can't begin bragging about, well, look at me. I put so much confidence in that lifeguard. No, when you're drowning, you need that lifeguard to step in. When a person is drowning in sin and they're justified by the Savior, you can only boast in your lifeguard from heaven. You can only boast in that Savior who used his ability to save you. That's the first thing that it reminds me of. The second thing it reminds me of is this faith issue that I have, it's completely removed from my involvement whatsoever. That's hard to hear. Maturing Christians get that. But if you're new to Christ or you're not a believer in Christ yet, you may be thinking, wait, I have to have a role in this. We do, but the Holy Spirit is the one that draws us in. This faith issue is completely removed from me from my process in it. Let me explain that to you. It was done. It was accomplished. It is finished, Jesus said from the cross, before I ever walked this earth. God dealt with it before I was ever born. He did all of this outside of me. He didn't include me in it. So I can't boast in it. So God resolved this issue before I was ever born. He propitiated himself. My role in it is to respond to what he's offered. But he did all the work. So with that thought in mind, if the cross has done all that's needed, if the cross has done everything, and his word reveals that my righteousness, it's as filthy rags, then it leads me to one ultimate conclusion. That's what Paul's building towards here. Jesus' sacrificial death for my sins, it removes from me any possibility of boasting whatsoever. If you grew up in the church, you're familiar with an old hymn. Isaac Watts wrote it back in the 1800s. It's called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Chris Tomlin took it and he retooled it in the last few years and did a great job with it, by the way. But here's the way the words go. When I survey the wondrous cross, I pour contempt on all my pride. Why did Isaac write that? Because even in the 1800s, he recognized we got a pride issue. We've got this issue where we're trying to earn our way to God. So Paul comes back and he says, it's excluded. It's shut out. God slammed the door on it. And how does he answer it? By the next part of verse 27. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. Verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. By what kind of law is boasting shut out? How is it shut down? Paul lived in a world with different kinds of law. He lived lived under the Jewish legal system. He understood law, so he's being rhetorical in his question here. By what kind of law? Paul, what are you talking about here? What kind of law could do that? Logically, somebody's going to say, by law of works? No. Logically, they're going to ask that question. Now, works are important, right? 
we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Right, church? Okay, we were, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Works are important, but works do not accomplish salvation. Can't. Can't possibly do that. So Paul rejects the very thought of this with an emphatic negative. No way, not that way. Don't go down that trail. And by the time you get to chapter 4, verse 2, he says, not even Abraham was justified because of his goodness, because of his works, but because of his faith. I know if you're church people, you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but just bear with me. Look on the screen at this verse through that lens. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result of, what church? Works. Why? That no one should boast. See, this boasting thing keeps leaking out, right? It's a big deal to God because it's the expression of pride. Now track this. If the greatest lie ever told to unfallen man, and there's only two of them, Adam and Eve, They're the only two who knew what it was to be unfallen. If the greatest lie ever told to unfallen man is this, you can be as God. God knows that in the day you eat of the fruit, you will be as God, knowing good from evil. If if that's the greatest lie that was told to unfallen man, and everybody since Adam and Eve has been fallen, here's the greatest lie that's told to our generation and every single person since that time, and it's consistent with all false belief. Here's the lie. That man is able to make himself acceptable to God. That's the greatest lie. Satan begins to perpetrate it in individual's life, like I can earn my way to God, believing that we can be good with God if we just do enough good things. If I just give enough money away, If I just go to church enough, if I just do enough of the right rituals, maybe then God will like me. That's totally contrary to God's word. You especially see that kind of behavior around Christmas time in America. I don't know what it's like in the rest of the world, but people typically show up for a Christmas Eve service because they're thinking like, yeah, I'm going I'm to be good with God because I'm going to go to church on Christmas Eve, right? So they can stand before him one day and say, you remember that one time when I went to church on Christmas Eve? I'm in, right? I'm good with God. There, there's this thought behind our mental process that we can do things to earn our way. Here's the fail with that thinking. The fail in that thinking is its sheer impossibility. It's absolutely ridiculous. How many good things do you have to do to stand before a holy God? How many things do you have to do before you can stand in his presence? See, there's evil in that thinking. And the great evil in that thinking is it completely robs God of his glory, his rightful glory that he is due. So if you have the greatest lie and you have the greatest fail and you have the greatest evil, where does that stem from? It stems right from the pit of hell. Jesus said Satan is the father of lies. He originated lies. He crafts them in such a way that he tries to speak into our life saying, you can do this, you can earn your way to God. Your Bible that you hold in your hands right now, the thing that you have open on your lap that hopefully you're reading throughout the week, that Bible decisively and completely cuts the legs out from any pride issue. It takes it right out from under it. 
This is Paul's response to that thought. Verse 28, for we maintain a man is justified by faith alone apart from works. Now, your Bible may not have the word alone in there, and and you'll see that I put it in parentheses up on the screen. I'm going to tell you why in just a minute, why that was added in that part. Understand, Paul is not giving his own personal opinion here. He's not giving an individual opinion. When he says we, he's talking about Christians. He's stating a truth that Christians hold. Justification takes place apart from works of any kind. And immediately, the people that Paul's writing to are obviously thinking, what, even like, even like the things Moses told us to do? Paul, like, there's some really good things under the law. Even those things, justification takes apart from that? Yeah, even that. We do nothing to merit it. We simply receive God's gift. Amen, church? Okay, here's the reason the word alone is up there. When Martin Luther translated this verse back in the 1500s, he inserted the word alone because he, where he'd come from, he came from a system of works. He was caught up in a church that was completely consumed with earning your way to God. And when he came through the Reformation process and began to understand what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus apart from works completely, he inserted this word alone, and people wanted to skewer him for it. They thought, how dare you add a word to Scripture? You're not supposed to add anything or take anything away. But he added it there for himself, simply because he understood if we see anything in addition to faith as needed for justification, then it's not faith. Faith, by its very definition, requires us to believe without works. So to show the universal scope of this, Paul asks the third question. It's really kind of an odd question. Look with me at verse 29. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? You've been talking about justification and faith, and all of a sudden he throws this question in there. It's like, what? Where'd that come from? It's like somebody saying, do you want ham on your pizza? Or did you have cereal for breakfast? Why throw that in there right at that point? Let me explain to you why. Here's his response. Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. That God is one is fundamental theology. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, right? Here's what God says about himself. Look with me on the screen. I am the Lord, Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord and there is no other beside me. There is no God. That's Old Testament. Look up with me at the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 8, 5. There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. So since there is one God, he must be the God of all, right? Okay, follow Paul's thinking here. Since there is one God, he must be the God of all meaning he is not the exclusive property of any one nation. He's not just the God of the United States. He's not just the God of Israel. He's one God over all humanity. Back that up, Psalm 22. The Bible says this, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Track Paul's thinking here. Since he is one, and he is the God over all of the earth, he's one God over all the nations, He wouldn't possibly have two ways of salvation, would he? He wouldn't possibly have two ways of salvation, one for one people group and one for another people group. He's one God. He does things one way. So it stands to reason. 
All whom God justifies will be justified the same way. If you have your Bible open, look very closely at verse 30, and Paul tells us what that same way is. Somebody shout it out for us. What's the same way? Both the circumcised and the uncircumcised are saved. Faith, yeah, right? It's through faith. It's logical. One God over all people. One guy, just, God justifies everybody the same way through faith. So just as there is only one God, there is only one salvation, faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're coming in here this morning, you're feeling like that, that's good news, but maybe you're new to church or you don't regularly go to church and you're thinking, this place is full of church people and this, maybe this doesn't apply to me. Maybe I don't fit into this. Just respond to this for me, church, if you would. Do you all have your act together? Okay. So if you're, if you're new to church, just know that you're among people who have also had to deal with this issue in their life. We are all sinners. Some of us have recognized who Jesus is and we're saved by grace. We recognize we don't have our act together. That's why we need a Savior. Now Paul's bringing this argument to a climax here. He said there's a rescue plan here. And this rescue plan reaches out to everyone, not just one unique individual group. He reaches out to everybody. God's word says, I'm not willing that anyone should perish. So if you're feeling disqualified this morning, like maybe this doesn't apply to you, maybe you've got too much sin in your life and God can't reach into your world, look with me at Romans 1.16. We looked at this months ago, but I want you to see this verse on the screen. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Look at the way that he says this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To who, church? To everyone. Everyone who believes. So if you're new to church or you're new to this information, this means something for you today. This means there is nothing standing between you and a relationship with the living God of the universe except for your sin. That's the only thing. That's the only thing standing between you and a relationship with God. And the good news is Jesus came to take away your sin. Problem solved, right? God dealt with it once and forever decisively. He shut out all boasting and said, I'm dealing with this. And I'm dealing with it. So no one else has to deal with it. And the result of it is he can give you a brand new beginning. Today can be a brand new start for you. I want to come back to the fourth question next week that we're just kind of running out of time. So let me just show you his fourth question and I'll just give you a comment on it. His, here's his fourth one, verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be, on the contrary, we establish the law. See, the law, the system of requirements, the commandments, those things were merely preparation for the way of salvation. They are not the way itself. So this week I was having a conversation with somebody who just literally, a person raised in church, a believer in Christ, who said to me, Mark, I, I need to understand better this thing of faith, this believing that we've been talking about this morning. What is faith that saves? How do I understand it? Because I want to know for sure whether or not I'm really saved. I put some things in your notes this morning. You can follow along that way, but here's how we're going to close out our time just before communion. I'm going to give you three untrustworthy evidences of saving faith, and then I'm going to give you some trustworthy evidences. So let me show you the untrustworthy evidences of faith. They're in your notes, but you'll see it on the screen as well. Here's the first one. 
Morality. Morality is no proof of salvation. You can be outwardly completely moral and not be saved. There are non-believers who put Christians to shame by their high standards of behavior. Morality is no indication of a person being saved. Let me give you an example from the Bible. You go to Matthew 19 and you've got a young man who comes to visit Jesus. According to the Bible, he's probably somewhere in his mid-20s. Maybe a little bit younger than that, but he's pretty wealthy. He either received a huge inheritance or he earned it somehow, we don't know, but he's got a lot of money. He comes to visit Jesus and we're told that he has a conversation and the conversation goes like this. Good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? How do I get it? Now, Jesus' response to him is this, keep the commandments. Now, his response to Jesus is kind of odd. I've never quite figured out why he says this, but he says, so like which ones? As though there's some that are more important than others, right? Okay. So Jesus lists off all the commandments for him. And he takes a breath of relief and he goes like, oh, that's so good. Because I've, I've totally done those. Now, we'll call this young man a millennial, Okay. Hey, no offense if you're a millennial, but this is just how um, in our world standards of behavior are measured, morality, okay? So we've got a guy who's just heard a list of all the things you have to do, and his response is, oh, that's so good, because I like, I love the environment, and I recycle, and I don't park in handicapped spaces, and I love people. I'm going to the soup kitchen, and I'm making sure the people who are homeless are getting meals. I am totally all about that. And notice when you read Matthew 19, Jesus does not challenge his authenticity. Jesus doesn't say, you're a liar. He just accepts it. The guy says, no, I'm good with that. I do all those things. But he recognizes he's lacking something. What, What else am I lacking, Jesus? And this is where it turns. Because he's so wealthy, Jesus says to him, Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Why did he deal with that? Because that was an issue in that young man's life. How do I know? Because he just got exposed. When you read Matthew 19, what you see is this young man got to the point where he had to put something else before Jesus or surrender that something else and chase after Jesus. And we're told according to the Bible, he left grieved because he had great wealth. What Jesus did is he exposed him by refusing to do what God had just told him to do. He just demonstrated he's doing works for the sake of works. So that's why I say morality is no proof of salvation. There's no evidence that you're chasing after Jesus. What about this one, religious activity? Absolutely not proof of salvation. God repeatedly condemned Israel for meticulously carrying out all the rituals doing everything that they thought they needed to do outwardly, but they had no relationship with God whatsoever. Here's the third one. What about somebody who's in active ministry? Like, they're doing things all the time for the kingdom, like working in church. That's no proof of salvation. Judas. Judas was active in ministry. If Jesus was a corporation, Judas was the bookkeeper treasurer, right? Jesus incorporated, Jesus is right there by his side. He's keeping the books. He's the guy who counted the money. But Judas betrayed Jesus. There was no relationship, even though he was working in the kingdom. Matthew 7 is a really scary passage of the Bible. 
Let me show it to you on the screen. These are Jesus' own words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's scary stuff, isn't it? It's like, ooh, I don't like that passage. There are some reliable evidences of your relationship with Jesus, though, and let me give them to you real quickly. They're in your notes. You can take them home with you, share them with other people, but here's some trustworthy evidences of saving faith. Here's number one, a love for God. Romans, Romans 8, 7, look with me on the screen. The mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, meaning this, an unsaved person cannot love God. It's not possible. A true child of God, despite failing, despite our shortcomings, is is at the point where they enjoy reading God's word. They take satisfaction in the relationship with God. Jesus stepped it up a notch when he said it this way. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That is hard. Because what he's saying is if you're putting earthly relationships first before the things I call you to, you obviously have something that's replacing me. You're allowing something else to get in way of the relationship with me. Here's number two, repentance from sin and hatred of it. A person who genuinely loves God is going to have an innate hatred for sin. Even though we do the things we don't want to do, it is impossible to love things that are contradictory to each other. Let me, let me show you Jesus' words again, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other. See, to love God is to have a deep abhorrence for sin, even though our humanness draws us into sinful behavior. But a person who's a believer, even though we're doing the things we know we're not supposed to do, a believer, even while he's committing sin, hates the sin he's committing and wants victory over it. But true repentance is way more than simply being sorry. Hear this. You got sin in your life you're trying to get victory over? True repentance is way more than just being sorry. Let's use Judas again for an example. Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas was sorry for what he did to the degree that he committed suicide. He was so upset with his sin and what he did to Jesus that he went out and took his own life. Question, church. If Judas had gone to the foot of the cross and asked Jesus for forgiveness, would Jesus have forgiven him? Absolutely. No question. Because he's not willing that any would perish. And God is greater than your sin. But Judas' sorrow did not drive him to the foot of the cross. True repentance will drive you to the foot of the cross. You recognize you've got sin. You want to deal with it in your life. 1 John 1.8, look with me on the screen. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, this is good news, right? He is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if a person's sin doesn't put him under conviction, that person really does need to check themselves and say, is this relationship with God real? Is this real? Because I'm not sure I really hate that sin that I'm involved in. 
You have to question yourself. So just check yourself on this. Here's number three, prayer. The heart of a genuine Christian cannot help but call out to God. God's your heavenly Father. According to Scripture, look with me on the screen, Galatians 4, 6, he planted within us this desire to cry out to him. Look with me. Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Every one of us is willing to admit that we don't pray as often as we should. I'm not looking for a show of hands, but I'll just put myself right there. We don't pray as often as we could, do we, church? Don't look at me that way, because I know that you too. We don't. Even though the Spirit is within us crying, Abba, Father, hear me. We want to pray more. We desire to do it. But is that desire even there? That's why you've got to check yourself on this. Here's the fourth one. Selfless love for other people, especially other Christians. First um, John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death. How do you know? We know that we've passed from death into life. Why? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Here's a fifth one. Separation from the world. Doesn't need any amplification. Just simply means in the world, but not of the world. Not lusting after it. It says this, 1 John 2.15, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful, see that boasting thing keeps coming up, right? The boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Here's the sixth one. Spiritual growth. And if, if you haven't previously read Matthew 13, this is the story of the parables of the seeds. Read it when you get a chance. Jesus is giving a description of what it looks like to be a believer. And he says there's some people that the seed goes into and, and they sprout up and they grow strong. There's others that wither and they fade away by the side of the road. But when he's using the parable seeds, the, the central truth coming out of this is true believers grow in their walk. So check yourself on this. Are you further along today in your walk than what you were a year ago at this time, or maybe two years or five years ago or 10 years ago. Are you praying more? Are you loving more? Are you reading God's word more? Are you loving the brethren more? Are you loving God more? These are the things that we can check ourselves on. Here's the last one, obedient living. 1 John 2, 3. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. I just want to remind you, these are evidences, right? These are not things that save you. These are just the things that give evidence that you are saved. Because you might be looking at this list and thinking, I'm not sure I'm doing so good on some of those. I might be coming up a little short. I might be failing a little bit. I'm worried. Here's what I want you to remember. And I'm remembering this because I'm a believer and I want to be reminded of this. I am so grateful that my salvation is dependent on God's provision and not on my performance. Yeah, <laughs> let's remember that truth. It's totally dependent upon God, not on my performance. But these things can be true of your life because of the power of the Holy Spirit that's in you. So when you come to the table this morning, you come to one of the tables for communion, I want to encourage you to remember what you're picking up when you pick up those elements is remember, it, it symbolizes the greatest gift ever given to man. God gave you eternal life outside of yourself. You didn't do anything for it. You just had to receive it. He did it for you. So when you come to the table, somebody's going to be at the table saying, this is the body and the blood of Christ. And you remember, he did it 
for you. You take it back to your seats, and I'll talk you through the rest. What I want to do, and it's our tradition here at New Hope, is just to read to you the instructions to the church from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is what was written for us. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, you're about to be a witness. You're going to witness to somebody on your left and on your right. You're going to be telling them, I believe. I'm a believer. And I believe that he not only died for me, but he's coming again. So that's why we get this huge warning in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So that's exactly what we do here at New Hope. We allow time for you to talk to the Heavenly Father, examine yourself. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to participate in communion here. We encourage that. And so take this time right now, talk to your Heavenly Father in prayer, and when you're ready, come up to one of the tables. Before we let you go, um, one, two things. If you need somebody to pray with you, there'll be individuals up here at the front of the auditorium who uh, will have little um, badges on that indicates they're, they're more than willing to pray with you. And if you need somebody to talk with about things you've heard in regards to salvation this morning, I'm here for you. Elders of the church are here for you. More than happy to talk with you about how to know Jesus as your Savior. If you came prepared to bring your pledge cards today, we, we celebrate that with you. Thank you for making that decision to do that. And the baskets are up here and in the back, and it's between you and God, you and your family, or you as an individual, what you decided to do. But we really celebrate what you decided. It took months to get to this point, so we recognize that this is a big decision. I, I want to pray for you as you leave. Lord God, I pray that your hand of blessing would rest upon these individuals. We've come together to celebrate and worship and follow you. We want to chase after you with our whole heart. But God, I ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would, you would empower us to do that. That we don't try and do this in our own strength. We just cried out to you. We need you. We recognize that. We're willing to acknowledge that. So, Father, I pray that your blessing would rest on us. Bless us for having spent this time to get to know you better. We ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.